so today is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the season that leads up to Christmas in the Christian calendar. And this year, I started a week early um, because we've got various things in our program that mean we can't follow the normal schedule, the, the normal four weeks, um, because we won't be here next week. And then the following week, which I can't remember if we've put it in the notices or not, but we have Dennis and Jill Barber coming, as they do every year, with their fair trade stall, and I've invited Jill to actually talk to us a bit about fair trade on that Sunday, so um, we won't be doing anything Adventy then. So um, so I started a week early, uh, and this year I've been trying to look at the bigger pic- the picture of the bigger story rather than the details of the Christmas story. Um, several people were disappointed last week that I didn't have my annual Christmas rant, um, for those of you who don't know what my annual Christmas rant consists of, it generally involves complaining that there weren't necessarily three wise men, and it doesn't say they were kings. In fact, they were probably Persian priests or Zoroastrians. The wise men, or the magi, weren't there with the shepherds. It wasn't in midwinter. There's no innkeeper in the biblical story. It almost certainly wasn't in a stable. Luke says that Jesus' the baby was placed in a manger, but it was probably the downstairs room in the house where the animals were kept. There's the whole Father Christmas thing that I won't even start on. (laughs) So please, whatever you do this Christmas, read the biblical accounts in Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2. Thank you, Hugh. (laughs) Um. We often shock people when we tell them that we always told our children, right from when they were very young, that there was no such thing as Father Christmas. Um, And we told them that it was fun, but it wasn't true. And we gave them Christmas stockings and all that sort of stuff. And I can remember on one occasion, um, we, we, we were at church, it wasn't here, it was in our previous church, we were at church and a couple of old ladies came up to our daughter Anne and said to her so what's Father Christmas bringing to you and we'd always told them to humour people when they talked to them about Father Christmas (laughs) so what's Father Christmas bringing to you are you excited all this sort of nonsense and Anne came away afterwards with me she was only about five at the time and I can remember holding my hand as we walked away and she said do you know daddy that daft old lady still believes in Father Christmas (laughs) So, anyway, but the reason we did that, there was a good reason we did that, which was our concern was that the whole narrative of Father Christmas is so tied up with the narrative of Jesus that when children discover we've been lying to them about the one thing, they stand a serious chance of throwing out the other. That was the reason we did it. Anyway, I'll leave that with you. That wasn't in my notes. This year I've decided to stand back and look at the big picture of the Christmas events. So last week we looked at Abraham. Um, We looked at God's promise to him back in Genesis chapter 12 that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And we thought about the idea of waiting. The fact that Abraham never lived to see what he had been promised by God, but he waited in faith. 
And we looked at how in many ways this problem, oh no we didn't, sorry, but in many ways this promise to Abraham is one of the origins and is at the root of the story of Christmas. So that right back in Abraham's time, God had already planned for the day when all the nations of the earth, not just the Hebrew tribes, would be incorporated into God's people. So today, we're going to look at the role of the Old Testament prophets in the development of that story, or as much as we can in 20 minutes or so. So first, I need to explain something about what we mean when we talk about the prophets. The role of prophets and prophecy in the Old Testament is not primarily to foretell the future. Those who read the Bible through, rather than using Bible reading notes, will know that because they have noticed that most of what the prophets talk about is not foretelling the future. The role of an Old Testament prophet was to call God's people back to him. To call God's people back to the covenants and promises of God. In the course of doing that, they sometimes spoke about future things. But their role was to call people back to God's covenant and God's promises and God's ways and God's law. And that involves insight into their sin, exhorting them to return to God's ways, and occasionally predictions about the future. But that foretelling the future is not their primary role. And those who scour Old Testament prophecy for predictions about modern Israel, the return of Jesus, or what the end times are going to look like, fundamentally misunderstand the nature and purpose of Old Testament prophecy. Now, it doesn't say, it doesn't say anything about those things, but that is only part of the concern of the Old Testament prophets. Having said that, however, Speaking about future events is one of the dimensions of prophecy in the Old Testament, and we'll have a short look today at some of the places where the Old Testament prophets pointed forward to Jesus. So there are a large number of prophecies in the Old Testament that can be interpreted as pointing to Jesus. In the course of preparing this, I suddenly realised this is a mammoth undertaking, and I've only scratched the surface of it. So... In the time available, Samuel's had enough already, I'm going to limit myself to some that the New Testament itself picks up on. But even then, that still leaves me with too much material. So I'm going to focus on parts of Matthew's Gospel in particular uh, and the Old Testament prophecies on which they lean. Why? Well, Matthew's Gospel spells out in numerous places that something Jesus did was in fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. You constantly come across this phrase in Matthew's Gospel if you read through it, rather than picking individual little bits out of it, that it keeps saying this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Um, This happened to fulfill. Um, It constantly crops up in Matthew's Gospel. So I thought, when I looked at it, that I'd take them in the same order as Matthew does, which might help us to understand why he treats them in that order, and it also might at least help us to tie it into the Christmas narrative, as the early part of Matthew's Gospel 
deals with the narrative of the Christmas story. Are you with me so far? This, some of this probably is a bit heavy this morning, which I do and don't apologise for. Um, so our first prophetic fulfilment statement occurs in the middle of the episode where Joseph has discovered that his teenage bride-to-be is pregnant. And Joseph, being an honourable and righteous man, is trying to think, how do I handle this? What on earth do I do here? Do I divorce her and put her away? Do we get married in a hurry? What do we do? And then in a dream, an angel speaks to him and tells him to go ahead with the marriage. So Matthew tells us that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin, or young woman, it doesn't necessarily mean virgin, will conceive and give birth to a son. Sorry if I shocked anybody there, it doesn't. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this passage is drawing on a verse in Isaiah. Isaiah 7:14 which says this It says therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth or the or will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel Now we often my approach to Old Testament prophecy is normally to try and look fairly directly at what it's saying Matthew reads prophecy in a very different way than we do, and a very different way than those of us who've had kind of Christian seminary education are taught to to read it as well. It's probably referring, so it's back in the the time of, um, I wish I hadn't said that, I think it's Isaiah or Hezekiah, I think it's Hezekiah, when there's a crisis going on. Um, But it's actually probably referring directly anyway, to the birth of Isaiah's own son, who has the worst name in the Bible. Do you want me to say it? His, his, his name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz, um, which means swift to the plunger, fast to the kill, or something like that. So that's probably what it's referring to, because in Chapter 8, we hear about the birth of Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Um, I've been practicing that, so I'm going to get it in as many times as I can. Um, And in Isaiah 8, there are several other references that suggest his sons were a sign. Both sons, I've forgotten the name of the other son, but Isaiah had two sons. uh, And which also tie in the name of Emmanuel to Isaiah's sons. Um, Have a look at Isaiah chapter 8 if you want to follow up on that. So it appears that what Isaiah has prophesied here in Isaiah 7 is having a reference back then to Isaiah's own sons, but then, because we believe that Matthew was an inspired gospel writer, that it also had a further future dimension to the birth of Jesus. Because Matthew is being very clear here that this birth of Jesus is referring back to that. To that prophetic word. Are you with me? Some puzzled looks here. So, um, so our first one here is a bit puzzling, quite honestly, um, because at first reading, 
what Isaiah prophesied back in Isaiah 7.14 referred to Isaiah 8 and what happened there, but it also, the inspired gospel writer is telling us, Matthew is telling us, refers to the birth of Jesus um, in the first century. So Isaiah lived, by the way, in the 8th century BC, or BCE, if you use modern terminology. Um, so Isaiah was a prophet in the, in the 8th century. So then we'll move on to the second one. I've only got four of these. I'm not going to go through the entire book of Matthew. So if you're counting and want to know how when it will finish, when we get to the fourth one, we're nearly there. So the second one, and, and these are all, I've taken these fulfillment statements in direct sequence. So the second one is Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. Now this one occurs in part of the Christmas story that often doesn't get read nowadays because King Herod has heard that a new child, a new king, is being born, which really bothers him. Why does it bother him? Because he's the existing king. It's a bit like Boris Johnson hearing that there's a new leader of the Conservative Party. Um, So he gathers, Herod gathers... That went down well. The cleverest people in the land together, and he asks them, where's the Messiah to be born? He got all the professors from Oxford and Cambridge, or the Judean equivalent of those, uh, and they said to him in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, we're in Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, And this passage is quoting Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2. Welcome back, Samuel. (laughs) Trying to get in inconspicuously there. Um, He's... (laughs) He's quoting Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah is one of the later prophets who prophesied in Judah, the southern kingdom, towards the end of the period of the kings. Um, And Micah prophesied this. He said, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So Matthew is telling us again that Micah here is speaking of what's the old Sunday school answer? Jesus. Um, Micah is telling us that this is speaking about the Lord Jesus, about where he would come from. You'll remember later on when Jesus is speaking, um, because he lived in Nazareth for a long time, a lot of people said, well, he can't be the Messiah because he has come from Nazareth and nothing good can come out of Nazareth. The Messiah must come from Bethlehem. So um, that's the second one that we see. And then also connected with uh, Herod's threats is Matthew 2, verses 14 to 15, which says this. Um, It says, so he, that's Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And this is drawing on Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, 
which says this. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is a very interesting reading of the Hosea passage by the Gospel writer, by Matthew. Because in the original passage, Hosea is talking about how much God loves his people, Israel. And as most of us will remember, or anyone who's been around the church for many years will remember, but if you are new to this, you probably won't, but Israel went into Egypt and was brought out by God in the Exodus. You're all familiar with the phrase, the Exodus. So in older Israelite history, the, the, the tribes of Israel, or the sons of the, the Joseph and his brothers, who were the um, ancestors of, of Israel, went down into Egypt because of a famine, um, uh, and were subsequently, several generations later, brought out by Moses. And this motif of going down to Egypt is one that we find recurring in Scripture. Um, I just want to dwell a bit on this. So last week we saw how, having received the promise that the land of Canaan would be his, Abraham did what? He went to Egypt. Why did he go to Egypt? Because there was a famine. Um, So... Abraham goes down to Egypt because there's a famine. Jacob and his brother, Jacob and his sons go down to Egypt because there's a... Later on, sorry, that is later on, and then Moses also brings those tribes out of Egypt to avoid them, um, not to avoid anything actually because God told him to. But here, Joseph takes Jesus down to Egypt to avoid the murderous King Herod. And when scripture has these things where you think, hang on, I've heard that before, you need to think, where have I heard that before? And why have I heard that before? So we do see something in scripture about God's people going through formative experiences in Egypt. Okay? Just follow me here. Uh, We are going somewhere with this. We see something of God's people being formed and prepared in Egypt, don't we? Which suggests to us, when Matthew is pointing back to this prophecy, that he is saying more than simply, Jesus went down to Egypt in fulfilment of a prophecy. It's more than just that, I think. Okay, I always add the words, I think, because I might be wrong. But actually, Jesus is almost kind of being presented as the new Israel, isn't he here? He is going down into Egypt. He will come back up out of Egypt and form a people around himself. So Jesus is being presented here as the new Israel. You can take that or leave it, but good commentators agree with me. Um, And then the fourth one that I want to look at is in Matthew 2, 17 and 18. Sorry, those are a bit small up there, aren't they? It looked really good on my computer. Um, So we're going to move on just a couple of verses from where we were. You can see this early part of Matthew is 
rich and soaked in references back to the Old Testament narrative. So Matthew 2 says this, it says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is hold, sorry, heard in Ramah, weeping and great warning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this is talking about the so-called massacre of the innocents when Herod ordered the killing of all baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem and its locality. But it also calls to mind another incident, doesn't it? Way back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, it calls to mind the orders of Pharaoh in Exodus to the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys born to Israelite mothers or to Hebrew mothers. And this passage is directly quoting Jeremiah 31.15. So Jeremiah is one of the later prophets who is prophesying in largely in Jerusalem, actually, at the time when Jerusalem falls and the people of Judah are taken off into exile in Babylon. Um, if you want to know what... You know, there are various people I'm going to be in the queue to see when I get to glory. The Apostle Paul is not one of them because that queue will be about 10,000 years long. Um, there are various people I'm going to try and get to see. One of them is Jeremiah. Um, who is much maligned. Jeremiah was a faithful preacher who preached for his entire life and only ever had two people respond to what he preached to. So he's a preacher's preacher, this man. Um, but the other thing about Jeremiah is that he seems to me to be the last person in Scripture who knew where the Ark of the Covenant was. So I'm going to ask Jeremiah, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant, Jeremiah? Um, and I bet it will be nothing to do with any of those conspiracy theories that float around. Anyway, so Jeremiah prophesies in 31.15. He says this. He says, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And the immediate context of this Jeremiah passage is it probably refers to young Jewish men or Judean men going off to war at the end of the period of the kingdom of Judah and their mothers weeping over their deaths. That's what it probably refers to in the immediate context. But to a Jewish believer of the first century, the connection to Herod's massacre is clear. And Jeremiah goes on to say, or particularly verse 16, which is the next verse, which says this, This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So this prophecy of Jeremiah's is a tragedy tinged with hope. You know, this idea that yes, there is great weeping and mourning, but there is hope in the midst of it because God is going to move. He's going to restore. Um, so we've seen a number of instances. There are many others, but I'm not going to go into all of them. I think hopefully you're beginning to get the idea here. Uh, it is always worth, by the way, if you haven't got a Bible that tells you where to find these verses in the Old Testament, throw it out and get one that has. 
um, because it's always worth looking at the notes at the bottom of the page, which I think you do get in the NIV, yes, I think the ESV does as well, where it will normally tell you which Old Testament verse or passage it's referring to. So we've seen a number of instances of Matthew linking the narrative of Jesus into the backstory of God's people. He's done it in ways that, frankly to me, as a 21st century Westerner, are quite unsatisfying. Because I look back at that prophecy and think, well, how on earth did you get to that one, Matthew? Um, But because he is so soaked in this Old Testament narrative, he makes connections that you and I wouldn't make. Um, You know, he is making a clear connection with this massacre of the innocents to the massacre of the Hebrew babies that happened back in, um, in Exodus, in the early part of Exodus. So, in the first four fulfillment statements in Matthew's Gospel, where he's pointing out the, old, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, we see Matthew quote from Isaiah, we see him quote from Hosea, we see him quote from Micah, and we see him quote from Jeremiah. Four different prophets. Um, not, it was in that order, wasn't it? So why do you think that might be? Why might he quote from four different prophets? It would have made much more sense if he'd been a bit more systematic, wouldn't it? And said, okay, this is what Isaiah says, this is what Jeremiah... Why do you think he might be quoting from four different Old Testament prophets? Okay, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, yeah, very good. Both very good answers. Yeah, um, yes, I could. So Cameron said, surely that's what this gospel's all about—to show that Jesus has come in that long line of, of fulfilling the Old Testament narrative. John said, help me out, John. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, to show that Jesus was there from the beginning right the way through. Um, absolutely. I think it's probably quite specific in its purpose. Um, I don't get it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Siri. I don't know how that happened. I'm preaching in a way that Siri can't understand, but that doesn't really worry me. I'm preaching to people, not computers. Um, I don't know how that happened. Um, Anyway. Several witnesses, yes. I think Matthew is trying to demonstrate... He's doing, first of all, he's not just trying to proof text one text and build a castle in the air on it, which is the way that we often do things. You know, we will take one verse and build a whole doctrine around it. What Matthew, I think, is doing is trying to demonstrate that this Jesus has come in fulfillment of the expectation of the Old Testament prophets. Also, the combination of prophets here I find quite interesting, um, which I wouldn't have known this had I not looked it up. So, you know, don't don't think he's clever. I'm not clever. I just look things up. Um, but Isaiah is an 8th century BC prophet um, who prophesied through the reigns of Isaiah down to probably Hezekiah. Um, so he's an 8th century prophet. 
Hosea is an 8th century prophet, but who is prophesying largely to the northern kingdom, so that's what's known as Israel rather than Judah. At this stage, the nation was separated into two kingdoms, two tribes in the southern kingdom, ten tribes in the northern kingdom, Israel. And Hosea is preaching largely to the northern kingdom, um, and he's probably... he's reckoned to be the only prophet who, were, who wrote down what he was prophesying at that stage to the northern kingdom. Micah is a later prophet who pre- preaches to the southern kingdom, to Judah, I think. Pretty sure that's right. And then Jeremiah certainly preaches to the southern kingdom right at the end of the period of the kings. Jeremiah is there when Jerusalem is trashed. Um, so... Jeremiah is um, a much later prophet. So he's also picked here prophets who were in the north and in the south and they're early and they're late. He's gone for the whole gamut of prophets. He's chosen representatives from all of the prophets. Um, I think the other thing that we see and that Matthew is trying to show us here is that the coming of Jesus was foretold centuries before the events actually happened. He's trying to make it absolutely clear to us that this is something that was foretold centuries ago, up to seven centuries earlier. He's also, I think, trying to show us that the gospel is anchored in the Old Testament narrative. I was telling the students at KST last week if you ever hear that I've murdered a Christian, their dying words are likely to have been, oh, but that's in the Old Testament, so it doesn't count now. Um, Because actually, this New Testament narrative is anchored in God's dealings with his people throughout history. And our life now should be anchored in God's dealings with his people throughout history, which brings us to the present moment. So this gospel, Matthew's gospel, this story of Jesus is anchored in an Old Testament narrative and is part of that whole narrative of God's dealings right down to the present moment. And then finally, and this is the point really, is that the events we remember at Christmas are not a sweet little story but they have to do with the very purpose of God in this world. The ever-expanding kingdom of God. That's what this story is about. I've I've talked before, haven't I, about God starts right back at the beginning of the Bible story with who? One person. Give you a clue. Thank you, Drew. Adam. We then have Eve. We then have the period of the patriarchs where God starts dealing with a whole family. Those families become 12 tribes and God starts dealing with a whole nation. Um, and then as we move into the New Testament, Jesus comes in order to fulfill that promise to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And in the New Testament, we have Jesus widening out to the disciples, widening out to the whole of creation. This gospel has continually expanded. And the story began with God in a garden with one man. The story ends with God in a city with all of humanity. This is an ever-expanding narrative 
And one of the things that, one of the reasons I get cross actually with the whole what we've done to Christmas is that we lose the bigness of what we're talking about at Christmas when we reduce it to a stable. And there were no mention, by the way, of sheep, oxes, or asses. Um, When we reduce it to that, we lose something of the bigness of what God is doing in his world. And I can get excited about the massive global implications of what God is doing and his impact in history and the fact that history is leading somewhere. I cannot get excited about a stable, and particularly not a lobster in a stable. I've seen two nativity plays with lobsters in stables, and it really annoys me. So... And I'll probably see a third because I've been invited back this year. Um, So, but that story, that narrative of what was going to happen was foretold centuries beforehand. It was foretold in some detail centuries beforehand. And the people writing it down thought that they were writing about the immediate future when actually what Matthew points out to us is they were actually writing about something far in the future that they had no real inkling of. And that story is still being worked out today. God is still expanding his kingdom on this earth today. His kingdom is ever expanding. I think that's quite exciting. Um, Thank you. But God's kingdom is ever expanding. It's still expanding today. It will continue expanding long after I'm on this, I've finished my time on this earth. Because God's kingdom is ever expanding. So this, these Old Testament prophets point towards something that they probably had little idea about. They point to something, they might have done, depends on your theory of theology of inspiration. I don't want to get in an argument about it, but I don't think they had much inkling of what they were writing about. Um, yet they are writing about events that are far in the future that are a fulfilment of that whole of that story leading up to that present moment. And I think we can, we can have confidence. You know, we have copies of these manuscripts going back a long way. This, this isn't something that people forged in the first century. And Matthew is at pains to point out to us that all of this is happening in fulfilment of what God had spoken about a long time before. We can have confidence in a gospel which is not just something that was dreamt up in the first century, but is something that follows in a long line of God's dealings with humanity and which culminates in God's return uh, in glory in Jesus um, to this earth. So I hope I've communicated there something of the bigness of this Old Testament prophetic picture. I've only looked at four prophetic fulfillments there. There are something like 20 or 30 in Matthew's Gospel. You can go away and look up the rest of them yourself. They are worth looking up because Matthew is making it very clear that actually all that happened in Jesus wasn't an accident. Jesus' death wasn't an accident. His birth wasn't an accident. His miracles weren't an accident. They were all actually something that came to fulfill what God had spoken through men and women centuries or years and centuries beforehand. So let's just pray and then...
Um, then I'll hand back to John or Cameron, whichever you, Cameron. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, we want to thank you for all that is written in it. Lord, we recognize that there are times when we find it difficult. There are times when we struggle with some of the concepts we come to come across because of the world in which we live. But Lord, we want to thank you that you have set down your revelation to us in your word. And we want to thank you that you are a God who was capable of telling us centuries beforehand, of of setting those clues in place centuries beforehand of what was to come to pass. And Lord, we want to pray that as we go into a Christmas season, that we will rejoice with our families and with those around us, that we will enjoy all that we do enjoy at this time of year. Lord, will you also fill our hearts with a sense of awe and expectancy at what it is you did in that original Christmas story, of the fact that God himself came into this world, um, that you came into a world as you'd said you would, uh, and you fulfilled all that you said you would. Lord, we know that you are a faithful God, and we come to your word seeing that you have been utterly faithful in your dealings with humanity down through the centuries. Lord, I want to pray that for each of us, you will set in our hearts a conviction of your faithfulness, of your love, of your purposes being worked out in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Uh, Lord, will you have your way among us, we pray. Will you be among us this Christmas and help us to be faithful in the way that we celebrate it. Thank you, Lord. Amen.